Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Nick are back for a new episode with special guest Sunday Seafried, founder of Safe Harbor Financial, a financial service provider in the cannabis space. Sunday joins us this week to discuss her insights on safer banking and the potential rescheduling of cannabis in 2024, Safe Harbor's industry-compliant financial solutions and latest milestones, and both the challenges and opportunities facing legal cannabis. If you're interested in learning more about Sunday and Safe Harbor Financial, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Sunday and Safe Harbor on LinkedIn and Twitter. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Sunday Seafried of Safe Harbor Financial. Sunday Seafried, founder of Safe Harbor Financial. Welcome back to the Green Rush. It is so great to have you on. Um, we, we are very excited to, to dive into a whole bunch of topics with you. There's been a ton going on um, in the can- cannabis financial space. But um, before we get started there, I just want to check in, you know, how's everything been going with, uh, with Safe Harbor? Well, I would say we are living in exciting times, right? It just never gets boring with this industry. So every time we turn around every year, something different changes and the, the market continues to emerge. And so I would say Safe Harbor just continues to emerge with them and evolve with them to make sure that we're right there in the space and not leaving them behind and them not leaving us behind. <laughs> and I'd love to see here, like, you know, what's the contrast of, you know, you started Safe Harbor back in 2015, right? And and now we're here in 2023. You know, how has that landscape really, really changed in your eyes? Well, you know, I breathe a lot better these days. <laughs> I, I have to say those first couple of years, I was holding my breath all the time, worried about prosecution and worried about making the wrong decisions and worried about getting, you know, pushed out of the industry because regulators didn't like what we were doing. So it was a constant fear right down to when you're opening an account and you get your first OFAC hit, oh my gosh, what do you do? Or suddenly, you know, the Federal Reserve decides they're going to do a special audit on, on your credit union and you've never had an audit in 20 years of your career. And you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to kick us out of cannabis banking. So I would say those first couple of years were full of fear, but the industry was so generous with their time in educating us and being compliant and working with us to help us build this program that, you know, it just... It's how we built the whole program right from the client base and what they needed and how we could do it around them. Can we talk about your client base like in general? Can you talk about who, you know, who uses Safe Harbor? What are some of the like this is the chance to pitch it. So who uses Safe Harbor? What are some of the services? Um, uh, Because I really feel like you guys are um, a, a a bright light in the industry. And I just want everyone to know exactly what it is you do and who you perform, who you have these services for. 
So we really have um, across the board, anything licensed, any licensed company across the country. And even we we do Puerto Rico and we do Guam. And so, I mean, any, any place that there's been trouble in terms of getting bank accounts, we have been there for the state to, to, to facilitate banking for them. So first of all, they've got to be licensed. The, the other group, and, and it doesn't matter if they're an MSO, which we can really optimize their position at this point in time in banking because they can they can take their 30 bank accounts into one financial institution with us at this point in time. Couldn't do okay. that before because we didn't have the balance sheet capacity, but now we do. So we serve everything from the mom and pops all the way up to the MSOs. And our bankers are well-trained, you know, quite frankly, when you're dealing with an MSO and you have a private banker like they do, it's it's much easier to deal with one banker, but it's also much easier for that banker to deal with 30 state accounts and, and have one client that they really get to know well. And then the other group we serve are ancillary service providers. So they get kicked out of their bank accounts all the time because what do they do? They take cash from the cannabis mm. industry mm-hmm. and banks don't like that cash and they don't like it, especially if it's cannabis, because it requires specific BSA obligations, which requires more resources. And, and BSA is one of those regulations financial institutions do not mess with because the fines you can see if you look up uh, BSA um, on online and you look up enforcement actions, you can see hundred $100 million fines on some of these banks for not doing it right. And, and can you just kind of expand a little bit on what BSA is for our audience that may not know? Sure. So it, it's called <laughs> Bank Secrecy, Bank Secrecy Act. But the funny thing is, is when I first met the very first client who did end up being the very first client and said he to me, uh, why is it we have to make deposits uh, at $9,000 a piece into three different ATMs every night? We can't use the same bank account. We can't use the same ATM. Why is that? And I, I looked right at him and I said, how did you know that? Because that's bank secrecy and it's supposed to be a secret. <laughs> it's a, it's uh, it really I, not I, a very good one. <laughs> no, well, you know, it's kind of there's funny. an acronym for it. <laughs> it's funny how it's just gotten to be more common knowledge, but it's an regulations uh, that were put out decades ago to fight illicit activities. Most illicit activities are done in cash, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. because the cash is intensive, it's difficult to trace that it goes with an illegal market, whether it's, uh, you know, arms dealing or if it's human trafficking, right? Many times these types of illicit activities are tied together, so cannabis gets thrown right in there because one, it's been illegal and it's it's got such an illegal market still. And two, because you can find illicit companies out there who are also doing other illicit activities. So banking and bank secrecy helps sort out the good guys from the bad guys. And then, you know, the federal agents can come in and they can do what they need to do. And it really does provide more legitimacy to those people who are licensed. It will eventually, when banking is across the board and available, it will help legitimize the market and and minimize illicit activities in the market. Well, I feel like you led us into the... (laughs) the elephant in the room or whatever we're calling safer now. Um, So we added an R to it, which is all very exciting. Um, But can you please, it's, and it passed the Senate banking committee um, at the end of September. Um, What are, what are your thoughts there? What was your first thought there? Another safe. 
<laughs> no, this time with an R. I know. It's safer now. So, you know, I worked with um, Ed Perlmutter when he first brought up safe banking, and I worked with Crapo's office. I was out there pushing for that legislation because, remember, my fear was getting prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So this legislation takes the fear out of getting prosecuted just because you're banking cannabis just because you're dealing in the market. And that's huge for the industry. So even that is one giant step forward that, you know, banks and credit unions can actually look at this market and say, I'm not going to be penalized or prosecuted just because I bank this market. So that's the first big thing there. It really isn't as much for the industry as it is for the banks (laughs) and the credit unions out there. So I think the second thing is, is that it um, provides access normalized access. There is still a federal reserve that we cannot secure an account at because it's a federal agency and they don't have to accept cannabis funds. Now, we've always been very transparent and we have like 14 federal reserve accounts across the country, but they don't have to open those accounts and they can shut down that bank or financial institution anytime they want if they don't like cannabis funds running through that Fed. Most of them understand, though, that It's important to have the accountability of those funds. The money was making its way into the financial system unmonitored, not accountable, way before we started banking. So everybody at the federal level at this point in time realizes they want banking because we're watching that money. We are doing the BSA obligations. And so it's safer for the financial system to have cannabis banking than not. So Safer, I think, can really open that door. But the first concern regulators will have is how many financial institutions will jump in without the resources necessary to know the market and sort out the illicit dollars. That's the main thing. And that is a talent that we at Safe Harbor have been able to grow over the last nine years. We know what the business looks like. We know what what looks normal. We know the trends of everything our clients are doing. And we we know our customer. You know, in a normal business world, you don't have to talk to your clients every month. We talk to our clients every month. We monitor their business every quarter. We have to do special activities every year. You don't have to do that with normal business accounts. That's the compliance because of BSA, not just because it's illegal. It's because of the BSA and it's cash intensive. So it, it, it sounds like Safer gets us part of the way there towards you know where we want to be. If there is there anything, if you had the ability to write it into the bill that you would add to this, or or something else that you would like to see come next um, following Safer Banking, assuming that it does you know make its way all the way through and does get signed into law. So I think that it is a stepping stone to actually maybe looking at the BSA regulations. If, if they right now, those won't change because of safer, but it is an opportunity to open that door to revise BSA so that it isn't as heavy a burden for financial institutions as it is right now. So I believe that that's something that could come out of this. I really don't know that there's a lot more I would add to it. I think they're finding, and I think when it gets to the house, they're going to add a whole lot more to it, right? <laughs> That's the way it works. So it'd be interesting to see what they add to it and if that will take the bill out of circulation because they add too much to it. So well, uh, they need it's increment first. But yeah, yeah, that's, sorry. That's, that's what I was going to add next. It's like, yeah. you know, the, the bill passes at the end of out of the out of the committee at the end of September. 
the house is in a sense in disarray right now. There's no speaker. How as you know, financial institution, are you speaking with your clients uh, about what this means for it? Or how are you guys kind of monitoring what's going on with the bill? Is it just kind of operating as normal because it, it, it's already not in place or, you know, is it um, a little bit like just in a standstill spot? You're absolutely correct. It's business as normal. For those of us who've been doing it for the nine years, nobody's prosecuted us. They've examined us. They know how we're doing mm-hmm. what we're doing. So for us, it's business as usual. Uh, we don't. Our clients don't even bring it up. They they really look at the talk about rescheduling as the big deal. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is far more interesting for them. And again, because everything's incremental in Washington and next year is an election year, it's a real opportunity for the industry to get some wins in terms of rescheduling and getting safer banking. And and we've had, I mean, it's been obviously a big topic for the last couple of weeks um, or months at this point. I don't know, time is weird, but um, <laughs> um there are people who think that um, because the recommendation from the HHS went for um, a schedule three, that the DEA may still come back with a schedule two. Um, look, we don't, nobody really knows for sure, except a very finite number of people. But do you have any, if you were a betting woman, <laughs> what would you, what What are you, your thoughts there? It will be a worthless move to put them on a schedule two, right? So, yes, it would be throwing them a bone, but then they're going to start all over and go through the process again. So if they don't go to schedule three, they're really doing nothing. Yeah, I don't believe the industry has lobbied for the schedule three. Everybody's lobbied for complete descheduling. Right. So if you can't go Mm -hmm. completely descheduling, then the compromise might be right in the middle there with a schedule three. I believe that schedule three will be considered. And I was more concerned as, as if they were going to do it for just medicinal, because even the omnibus uh, bill, uh, bill or budget only references medicinal. They never talk about adult use or recreational. Mm-hmm. So I was concerned because if they were to just reschedule medicinal only, we'd have to really break those businesses apart. If one is a one and one is a three, but. As I discussed with um, the Honorable Ed Perlmutter, and uh, he's been a big supporter of ours over the years, he made it pretty clear that they won't distinguish between. They will just say marijuana, neither medicinal. So that's a really great thing for the industry. But the best thing it does for them is obviously it reduces their tax burden. Some of them are taxed at 75, 80% effectively because they can't take cost of goods. But what they do is they complicate their business and they structure their business to try to find those tax breaks. And so not only will it give them a tax break, but they can start consolidating those operations and they don't have to break them all apart and have a an HR company here and a real estate company here. And, right. oh, here's the licensed cannabis one that gets no, right. no business write-offs, right? So it's really going to make life easier for them if it goes to a three. Yeah, that's what we, we've been hearing the same thing. It's just like, oh, if that 280E issue can just finally get resolved. I feel like it's, it's got to be, it's coming up on a decade where we, we keep thinking that there's going to be progress on this and it, and it just hasn't happened yet. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed, 2024 is going to be the year. <laughs> It'll be great for the industry. But, you know, it will also be great for banking. And here's why. Yeah. We try to make loans to the industry. And that 280 
E really restricts them in, in their ability to service the debt that we put out there. You know, once it goes mm -hmm. away and they're not having to pay all those extra taxes, they're going to have more money to actually get debt and be able to service that debt. So that's also a big plus on the banking side. Yeah, I mean, I think just the the ability to scale, like I think a lot of people, you know, people outside the industry see it. Oh, my gosh, you're in the cannabis space. You open up your storefront and it's a win. Um, and no one outside the space really understands the the implications of, of 280E, which was such an arcane, you know, uh, you know, thing before before cannabis. And I think that, um, you know, understanding that it's going to be better for the industry, it's going to be better for consumers because, you know, hopefully those those costs and those ridiculous taxes, <laughs> you know, will hopefully be able to to kind of, you know, make it something that's more of a competitive consumer product versus like, you know, right now, I mean, the illicit market is still so enormous that, you know, it's just eating the, the regulated markets lunch. And, you know, I can only, I can only imagine that if 280E is gone, businesses like yours, I mean, people will be turning to businesses like yours that, you know, for a line of credit, um, or, you know, for some, for, for debt, uh, to help service expansion. So, um, you know, you, you right now service credit or, uh, or can you just talk a little bit about that, that line of your business? Yes, we so we um, we like everything. We're we're bankers by trade. At least I am since 1983. So we don't move really fast, but probably faster than other financial institutions, considering we've been in cannabis for nine years, right? But um, we started the lending program two two and a half years ago, and we really wanted to extend it to our clients because we know them so well. Mm -hmm. So we have put over $45 million on the books in, in our financial institutions at this point in time and made those loans. And it's anywhere from we really focus on real estate. And that's where I like to tell people to start their relationship and credit because that's what they're going to build on. You get a real estate loan with us and then you want to come back and you want to get that working capital loan or you want to get an equipment loan. But you prove your business to us quarter over quarter that you're meeting targets and that you're growing your business and you're you're successful. So and, and the most recent one we put out is line of credit. A line of credit is a little different than um, a real estate loan, but the way we're looking at line of credit is if you're depositing, you know, a million two every single month, we can look at that as steady cash flow, which means we can do a line of credit that accommodates the amount of deposits you're making into the financial institution, and you don't have to worry about getting too tight. We have a lot of clients who you know, come, come to a payday and they're, you know, they're not necessarily sometimes being able to meet that obligation or they're finding cash from investors at the last minute to cover that payroll. The line of credit will allow them to pay mm. that payroll and take themselves negative while they put the money in. The other thing that people don't completely understand is there's always money in transit. So we have couriers all over the country moving millions of cash dollars into the Federal Reserve every single day. But the client, they pick it up from the client and they have to take it to a vault and they count it and they verify it, make sure there's no, you know, bad money in there. And then they move it to the Federal Reserve. So they're looking for like counterfeits, right? Bad, bad mm -hmm. bills. We don't talk about bad bills. And they move it to the Federal Reserve. And then we get a report from that company that night. So there's a delay between cash pickup, making that money, 
and getting it in your bank account. So, you know, the fact is the line of credit is supposed to assist them with that money in transit mm. as well. I think that's something that people don't really realize either is like the just I think we're such an Apple Pay society and credit card society and everything's just so electronic. And, you know, people don't think like, oh, those bills need to be safely transported. They need to be counted. Um, and, you know, the the Federal Reserve needs to actually take them. Um, so I think that's a whole st step that a lot of people just don't fully appreciate. Um, even when the major credit cards get into the game at some point in time, and I don't know if Safer is going to be that time, I still think they won't get in unless they know there's a financial institution on the other side who's actually monitoring the cash for them, right? Mm -hmm. so there's really some stepping stones that have got to go through there. But they think that there's not going to be any more cash. But look at the liquor stores. Look how much cash liquor stores and tobacco stores and gas. And I mean, there's and casinos like these are still cash intensive businesses, even though they're legal, because even my husband won't buy wine for me on a credit card. <laughs> At least he buys wine for me once in a while. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give him that. We'll give him. Yeah. That. <laughs> but wait, why won't he put wine on a credit card? He doesn't want a record of it. It's kind of like when, you know, people don't want a record of how much alcohol. And oh, I'm screwed. You know, I am. <laughs> Damn it. On my, my credit card, I'm like, think what you want. You know, everybody drinks, most people drink alcohol, but the same thing with cannabis. People don't want anyone to know they're buying cannabis, especially the generation that's, you know, this aging generation who's really a growing market in the mm -hmm. industry, right? They're not used to having things on the credit card. Maybe they don't want their CPA to know. Maybe they don't want anyone <laughs> to know. But then there was also the time when you were trying to cross the border to Canada, right? And mm -hmm. and if they uh, found any kind of thing on your debit or credit card, some people got yeah. denied entry. Oh, had nothing yeah. that. Oh, I remember having clients like sitting in, you know, uh, airport purgatory being like, <laughs> I was just at a conference. I don't have anything. I promise. And then looking at, you know, your, the, the, the credit card and, you know, it's incredibly invasive, but yeah, that's just, it's just such a weird industry. I don't know. That's, it's just so weird. And so, um, I, I think having something like descheduling or rescheduling, um, is even just going to normalize, normalize it among, people who may not necessarily be like, oh, interested in buying. So I feel like it'll also be something that makes people feel better who maybe are in pain or can't sleep or or don't or want an alternative to alcohol, but they don't want to buy it because of, you know, credit cards or whatever. And, you know, I think it'll just in general open up a new market for people. Yeah. And, and the stigma is decreasing every year. I do. Yeah. believe that. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And I spoke with an investor today and we got, the, we, we thought funny business of marijuana. And I said, <laughs> understand. He says, I've never touched a joint. I've never done anything in my life. I don't even drink, but it's like the most exciting industry since, you know, the dot-com industry. So, you know, people see it and, and, and his belief was that it's your body and you should be able to dictate what you put into your body. I have nothing against legalization. So I think the stigma is decreasing out there. It took a while, though, because when we first got into the industry, 
I, there were like, and I was out there educating financial institutions. There were people who wouldn't even talk to me in banking. Mm -hmm. They just thought it was the most simple thing you could do, let alone the fact that you could give us all a bad name by going to prison on this one. (laughs) And so, I mean, it was just so stigma driven. And, uh, you know, people would just shun me if they ever found out, like, what do you do? Well, I'm working on cannabis banking, you know, turn their back on me. (laughs) They didn't want to, didn't want to affiliate with anybody in the industry. So, and I'm no, I'm just the banker who got into it to support the industry. But imagine the hardships the real growers went through, the mm-hmm. real people who cut the path for the legalization of all this industry. They went through a, a really tough time. Yeah, I appreciate that shout out for all those people because, yeah, it's it's a decades long uh, advocacy work just to get us to this point, especially the people that did all the medical marijuana uh, work, getting that introduced into, into various states and proving that, you know, a lot of people can benefit from this. So um, definitely appreciate that shout out, Sunday. Well, they were, you know, that was, I will tell you, there were times I wanted to quit. <laughs> I didn't, the, the year I started doing this, I didn't get my first day off until Easter. I started in December and Easter was my first day off that year. I was working 10 to 15 hours a day because, you know, people, they told me you're going to fail. That yeah. people didn't support me. And I'm like, the more they told me I was going to fail, the harder I worked, right? But uh, when I met the industry that first month, and I said, this is more complicated than I knew. And then I met the people and I'm like, you hear the stories about them going and collecting $20,000 in cash and they have their children with them. How could you let that go on if you know it? Once you hear something like that, you can't unlearn it. Somebody had to fix it, right? I kept saying, somebody's got to do it. And that's what my board finally, somebody's got to do it. And and they trusted me to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sad, but, you, you know, that refusal to fail has really, you know, shown in the success of Safe Harbor um, in the last couple of months, you know, bringing it back to you guys. You've had some great milestones and news. Um, you announced uh, facilitating uh, the processing of over $20 billion of cannabis related funds. Um, 140% year-over-year revenue increase. Can you expand a little bit more, you know, um, what drives that growth for Safe Harbor? And then where do you expect uh, um, Safe Harbor to go in 2024? I will say the best growth. And, and you know, now that we're a public company, we have to be thinking about this. And, you know, Which, uh, what's the, the um, ticker? SHFS, Safe Harbor Financial Services. Yeah. SHFS. I know it took me a while to memorize that and say it right. <laughs> but yeah, on NASDAQ, now that now that you know we're a public company, you know, the investors are pretty honest, sometimes pretty brutal in terms of how fast they expect you to go as a company. And even, you know, our some of the new investors we're getting, they're they're more uh banking type investors. So they're used to being in a hold, a relationship building position because banking's all about building those relationships long term. Right. So I think the growth, the best growth is in our M&A strategy. And one of the strategies is going out there and, you know, taking portfolios over from financial institutions who want to exit, especially if they're concerned about the competition coming in. We're not nearly as concerned because 
one, we've got a real solid proven program. We know what we're doing. We've got the talent on board, you know, but, and, and we can keep up We're we've been low cost provider for years, right? So for us, we're making revenue now on lending. So that means we don't have to depend upon depository fees. So we're d- distributing the income and, 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 and getting it from different places, which will only allow us to price lower and more aggressively for the industry as we build this out. So, our objective is to find other portfolios from financial institutions that want to who want to actually um, exit, and that is one of the reasons we had that ex- extra growth over the last year. We did the Abica acquisition last November, and they brought um, you know 300 accounts to the table, and that really gave us the boost there in the growth. So to us, we have to go out and get the accounts first. Once we get the accounts and get the deposits. Then we're able to loan off of our deposits at a very competitive rate. We don't have to go to the capital market and pay investors a high rate of return. We just have to cover the cost of funds at our financial institutions. How much do you pay attention to trends? Um, and I'm talking about consumption trends or, um, you know, you had you guys um, have I serviced a $3 million loan for uh, an infused beverage uh, brand in Washington state. Um, And I'm just wondering how much the, the, the trend of beverage either, you know, is something that you're going to see hockey stick up or you think it's going to kind of gradually tick up or how, how important is, is trends in when you guys decide to take on um, a, a client? That's an interesting question. Um, well, we've been taking on every time there's a new type of license, you know, whether it's edibles or beverage or now we're getting into the lounges, right? You know, we're always out yeah. there because we want to test it. We want to know what they're doing. We want to see if that's going to grow. Um, there are everything that's gotten out there has been getting out there by demand by consumers. So the companies really do their homework. And when we get to know them and bring them in, we're talking to them about their business plan. We're looking at the homework they did on in yeah. terms of trends. Like beverages is one of those things that has taken off a lot, right? You're getting infused beverages and everything from alcohol to, you know, I ran into Keith Cole at the Benzinga conference and and I looked at him and I said, shh. But you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a loyal customer. <laughs> in a glass of wine, think about this. In a glass of wine, it's like 150 calories. You know, you, you probably don't have to do this, Nick. But most women watch our weight, right? And wine is one of those things where calories can really slip in. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I started getting this. Somebody told me about this infused beverage, and it's it's got no sugar. You add just a little capful, and it's like you know five milligrams of THC, I think. You put it in with like a diet soda, put some berries in it, an umbrella, and you don't have to have that glass of wine. You got a five calorie drink. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that, you know, when they, the next thing I think is going to happen is they've they've discovered, you know, the THC where you don't get the munchies and it's actually Mm -hmm. a diet THC. I mean, hit the. Hit the female market with that. Yeah, right. Oh, I think everybody be all over that. Yeah, I think everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. So, 
I don't I don't have to pay attention to the trends. I have to pay attention to the individual company and the homework they did. And um, usually they've gone through the whole, you know, investment process and got they're bringing in such sophisticated people at this point in time into these companies when they launch a new type of product like that. But there's already so many companies who have proven it out, like, you know, like Wana has done with edibles. I mean, they just oh, yeah. front and center, right, across the country. It's it's very interesting, though. Like, it's just it's just an exciting market to watch. All right. I have a, a two part question for you. Um, I want to know, you know, what are the biggest challenges that you see still facing the cannabis industry? I know we've talked about it on the banking, but are there other challenges there? And then also, where are the opportunities that you see um, for cannabis companies? Well, I think the challenge and the opportunity are almost the same thing here. Mm. And that's going to be how do they deal cross state borders mm. or even global for that matter, right? You know, mm-hmm. it just expands across the world. But the opportunity is how do we work with other states? But the problem is how do you work with other states when everybody has been at the state level and they all have their own regulations? How do you get 38 states to actually talk to each other and build similar regulations that allow for cross-border? That's going to be the problem because if you look at Colorado, who's got a long-time program at this point in time, do they really want to open their market to California? Right. Opportunity and challenge, I think, is it's going to be interesting. But, you know, now you have to have that problem where if you want to have an edible that's uh, produced in California and you want to have it in Massachusetts, that's a a good thing. If you've got somebody who specialized in a really good edible rather than reinvent the wheel. But how do you get it to Massachusetts presently? They almost they have to create another company in Massachusetts, right? So once yeah. again, complicating the business, and then they have their IP through that company. Then they have to build another manufacturer. All of that happens. So I think challenge and opportunity is there. Yeah, it is so inefficient. Sorry, the way that we worked this all together is so inefficient. Um, I'm just you know, surprised it's not more smoking in the bandit situations. Just people yeah. trying trying to move it across the across. I the mean, world. I think there I think there are. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely, yeah. I mean, but if you look at like a state like South Dakota, like should they really be growing cannabis? Like, you know, they can do other things well, but maybe not that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, it is a tremendous opportunity. I think it's going to be really interesting to follow that and see what the, um, what the, the governors and the, you know, the AGs decide to do. Um, if nothing at the federal level gets done to address that. Um, I have one last question for you. Okay. Um, what is the biggest untold story that you wish you opened up in the front page of the Wall Street Journal tomorrow and saw this story on the cannabis industry? I I have to go back to what I said a little earlier, and, and Nick, you you said something to reinforce it was the amount of work it took to get this emerging market moving forward and the hardships of those people. And then what happened was, you know, they started selling their licenses or selling out and everybody thought they were quitting or they were just exiting for the money. But you do that for nine years and you get burned out Mm -hmm. and you can only fight a battle so long. And I don't think that the present industry will ever know how much work it took to bring this product to market and get it legitimized. Those are interesting stories to me. 
you know, when my grandma couldn't see her Bible, so we had to get into cannabis, and then she started crying when she could read, and the cataracts weren't so bad. I mean, those were the stories that broke my heart and said, yeah. I, I got to help. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think, yeah, just, I I, I just feel so grateful for for the decades of work that people have done to, to be able to help so many people, and I'm glad that, you know, Sunday, that you, you've brought attention to here in this conversation as well. But um, this has been fantastic having you back on the show again. Um, we'd love to have you back on um, as Safer progresses, hopefully, if the house can get itself in order. Um, and, and hopefully in 2024, when HHS um, or when the uh, FDA takes up on the HHS recommendation, you know, we will, um, I'm sure, see just more evolution in the landscape on cannabis. But Sunday, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Appreciate the time. Again, a huge thanks to Sunday Seafried, founder of Safe Harbor Financial, for joining us today. Um, you can follow them at shfinancial.org, as well as their listing on the NASDAQ, SFHS. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter, not X. I'm still calling it Twitter, um, with the handle at the underscore Green Rush, or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. Let us know who you want us to talk to, what topics you want to hear, and any other show ideas that you'd love to pass along. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take. Cannabis! Cannabis!